welcome to Late Nights at the Chuckle Cafe. Welcome your first comedian, Mr. Blackjack. Mind if I light this smoke? Ooh, yeah. Well, if you mind, then you can kiss my ass. Ooh. Smoke them if you got them. All right. Ooh. So I was at the bar smoking cigarettes, all right, with my boys. And then I start talking to this broad, all right? I go, hey, young miss. How about we go back to my place? Oh! And by that I mean, let's check the humidity! Oh! And by that I mean, let's play hide the cannoli! Oh! And by that I mean, let's bump some uglies! Oh! Yeah! And by that I mean, let's knock boots! Ooh! And by that I mean, let's take a trip to Pound Town! Ooh! And by that I mean, let's have sexual relations! Oh! This is William Hung, and you're listening to the Society Show. Oh, Christian, it's your buddy, Kato Kalen. Yeah, I know about the Society Show. I love it. That podcast is the best. Broadcasting live to tape from the new Society Show Theater in the most standoffish city in the world outside of Austria. Seattle, Washington. I'm listening. You're listening to a podcast that's exists for exactly one year now. This is the one year anniversary. I have a great episode planned. Um, so here's generally what I'm going to do. I have two people to call out this episode and I'm going to be devoting a lot of time to that. Um, but this episode signifies a new start. It ain't a start. Uh, <laughs> from uh, Arrested Development. It signifies a new start of the Society Show podcast. I don't know if you know this, but this show actually has seasons. So the first season was the first four episodes that are no longer available online. Second season is when the Society Show was at the Old Society Theater in Philadelphia. And then the third season, the new era, is the one set in the new Society Theater in Seattle, Washington. Well, with a, it's been a year now, so this signifies the start of season four. I'll be completely honest, the seasons don't mean anything. Uh, they just ask for that information when you enter it into the, the database. So, doesn't really matter what season we're on, but the point is, it's a new start. It's, a, it's the rebirth of the society show, and I really think the show is going to blow up in 2021. Kaboom. Hey, dude, this is Colin from Auburn, Washington. Just wanted to say congrats on one year and keep it coming, dude. 
Congrats to Christian and the Society Show. One year. Hey, I'll drink to that. So I have a few people who I want to call out. One I want to invite on the show. One, the other one, I guess I also want to invite on the show, but uh, I don't think he ever will. And uh, I'm I'm gonna add him to the denunciation list. So I'll just put that out there. If you're a new listener, the show has a denunciation list. Very occasionally, I'll add people, but only if they're acting like absolute scumbags. Um, you, you know, there's only like six people on it right now, so it takes a lot to get added to the denunciation list. Stay tuned for that. But first, 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 here's some news around the world that, uh, I guess say a lot about society. society. Number one, South Korea, the South Korean spy agency has accused North Korean hackers of targeting vaccine tech. When will North Korea stop? First they want nukes, now they want vaccines. It's like they have a death wish or something. You wear the shadows well, fellow thief. Also, Mexico blames U.S. as the energy crisis spills across the border. That's what the Bloomberg headline says, but I will say... Mexico is completely justified in blaming the U.S. You know, the use of blame uh, kind of implies that... uh, Mexico's really at fault that they're putting blame on someone else. No, Mexico is like maybe not forced, but right now a lot of northern Mexico does use the same power grid as Texas. I'm not going to say they're forced to use it, but the current president AMLO really wants the US or wants Mexico to be less dependent on the US for oil and energy. Oh, there's energy! And then finally, um, an SEC official, the Securities Exchange something or other, they handle like stock-related stuff, is basically pushing for clear crypto, cryptocurrencies. Um, They want a regulatory body to handle stuff like that. And it especially comes after companies like Tesla and MasterCard um, have started embracing Bitcoin. So, I don't really have much to say about this. Like, I don't know if you collect Bitcoin. I don't know if it's good for you. I don't know if it'd be bad for you. Um, Maybe it's good in some ways, bad in others. But what this signifies to society is that we've just gone full-blown all-in on on funny money like i would consider our money funny money it does not actually have like i mean it only has value because the state prints it you might be like that's how all money is or all fiat currency is but that's really just accelerated uh and the idea of mmt monetary or modern monetary theory i don't even want to get into that but let me just say this about MMT. It's apparently a progressive monetary theory. They claim that money really only has value because the government circulates it. You have to pay taxes in it. Like, and the money has no real value to the US government because they don't actually need money to do anything. You know how we talk about the trillions of dollars in debt? 
you might be like, oh, well, we, at, we, we have to pay that off at some point. No, the debt's just an excuse to keep the current system going, but in reality, the government doesn't really need money to do anything. They only need to collect it so they can keep track of it, continue circulating it, have an idea of what money needs to be where, when, blah, blah, blah. And modern monetary theory is basically the seemingly progressive belief that that is not only okay, but that is, like, how money should work. And I think this whole, like, shift to the SEC wanting to regulate crypto uh, shows the finance community going all in on this sort of... uh, the world that follows fiat currencies, where it's all just funny money. Um, but again, I'm no, I'm no finance expert, but uh, that could signify an end to some things in our society. Hey, Society Show. This is Megan calling from Portland, Oregon, and I wanted to say congrats on one year. That is a long time. So much has happened in this past year, and you made it through. Congrats again. Bye. I'll get some to some more stuff, but first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. This episode is brought to you by Mr. Clean. There's no clean like Mr. Clean. The strength of Mr. Clean in five fresh scents. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Mr. Clean leaves a sheen where you clean. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Now... Uh, now is the time for a new segment. It's going to be a segment where I invite someone on the show. And I am inviting a guy, uh, for, just so you know, this segment's called The Pressure Cooker. Welcome to The Pressure Cooker. In the future, any pressure cooker segments will be me either inviting someone on the show or someone I invited on the show taking me up in the offer and taking a step into the pressure cooker. Pressure cooker. So I'm inviting a guy named Conceptual James on the show. If you follow Society Show on Twitter, at Society underscore show, you may have seen me quote tweet posts by a man who goes by Conceptual James. Conceptual James is... A right-wing sophist, I mean, if if you don't know what sophist means, I don't mean to patronize, maybe it's an obvious word, but uh, sophistry is like the ancient Greek idea of philosophers who are just pure rhetoric. It's kind of like the negative stereotype of a lawyer. Like, he, he, this dude, conceptual James, he, all he knows is these quirky little weird esoteric word games to make it seem like he's making a point and uh that's how i would describe him um he comes up with all these elaborate conceptual ideas that are frankly completely detached from lived reality they only exist in his mind 
And I actually have a connection to Conceptual James personally. Conceptual James participated in a hoax called the Grievance Studies Affair. Uh, He participated in this hoax. One of the other people involved was a man named Peter Bogosian, a professor at Portland State University. I actually had uh, Pete Bogosian as a professor two or three times when I was in college. Uh, At the time, Pete was most well-known as kind of a new atheist professor. And then after I took his classes, he transitioned his focus more to criticizing woke culture. The Grievances Study Affair is when they wrote fake woke academic papers as a prank and submitted them out. And ultimately, I mean, I can't criticize them too hard for that because I always support a prank. But I also think that their point about woke culture, I don't think it really made the point as well as they think it did. Like, no one is, no one who's woke, no one who's into, like, intersectionality is going to change their mind because someone did this kind of, this prank where it makes them look bad, but it, like, kind of, it just, I don't have much thoughts on it, but I think it's not an effective prank, I'll put it that way. And that's a digression, like, I just wanted to say, Pete Bogosian, you were also welcome on this podcast. Um, It would be a good old-fashioned student-teacher reunion. I know he doesn't remember me, though. He probably didn't remember me a week after I took his class. But uh, to get back on topic, let me tell a little more about Conceptual James. He obviously has a rigid and dogmatic worldview, He's always referring to his weird assumptions about the world that only make sense in his mind. For example, here are a couple tweets of his. I'm just going to read two, but I feel like it exemplifies his angle perfectly. So he writes, quote, The woke get surprisingly pissed off when linked to Hegel. Almost like it pulls back a curtain they don't want pulled back. Since they react in opposing directions, I have to assume it's straight on the target. And then he continues in a reply to that tweet, because it wasn't as obscure and esoteric enough, he really had to step it up. He said, a mathy way to say it would be that Marx did a, quote, Fourier transform, end quote, on Hegel, and Gramsci did the inverse Fourier transform on Marx. That set up Mao, a Leninist, to adopt a model of cultural Marxism that's now been repurposed through identity politics for the West. Um, So I guess what he's saying is basically, (laughs) he has a very, he understands the concepts, but he has a very limited sense of the world. He's basically like, Marx is the opposite of Hegel and Gramsci's the opposite of Marx and then Mao is the opposite of the like it, it just it's the most um it's like the least intellectually curious way to look at the world it's like I have this rigid worldview where uh you know Marx is the Fourier transform of Hegel huh that's what I think, and everything about the world relates to this idea that Marx did the Fourier transform on Hegel, and Gramsci did the inverse Fourier transform on Marx. That's all just bullshit. It means nothing about the world. Like, even the most heady, 
leftist who thinks uh, conceptually all the time, reads theory all the time, they do not think in as idealized and abstracted from reality terms as this crap. And I'm not saying this as someone who hates philosophy or something. I'm saying this as someone with a degree in philosophy. You know how many people like Conceptual James you encounter in any philosophy program at any college? Probably like a third of all philosophy students. No joke. He is a dime a dozen. And he thinks he's unique because his fans are really stupid conservatives. They've never heard anyone who talks about uh, Hegel in their life. And that's why I am inviting Conceptual James into the pressure cooker. This is the pressure cooker. I'm talking to you right now, Conceptual. You are welcome on the show. Under one condition, you have to be able to make your point and not mention Hegel. Welcome to the Pressure Cooker. Hey, Society Show. It's Nick. Uh, congrats on a year. Um, we don't have too many of those left based on the documents I'm looking at here, so uh, it's nice to get them in while we can. Uh, listen, we're celebrating here. You know, just a small group of friends. Um... Uh, Jeff Bezos is in the hot tub with Elon. I think, uh, I actually don't know where Peter Thiel is right now. Like, he's somewhere. Uh, him and Bill Gates are talking about microchips or something. Uh, I don't know. Um, but we're all drinking champagne. Uh, we're mining some new cryptocurrency. It's still pretty, uh, still pretty secret. Um, but I think it's gonna be big. You know how we, you know how we do these things. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I just want to call and say congrats on a year. Uh, Here's to at least a couple more. Um, I'm telling you, I'm looking at some documents, uh, and I, I won't tell you where I got them, but uh, you would not believe what 2021 is going to have in store for us. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, congrats again on a year, and uh, here's to a couple more. All right, so before I move on to the major main segment of the show, I do want to touch on some more news. Um, this story, it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's sad. I'll get to the sad part at the end. You've probably heard about it. The senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, tried to ditch Texas, which had been pummeled by snow. If you're listening to this in the future, uh, you probably don't know this, but in the present, you've probably heard all about it. There have been numerous power outages. Uh, threatening lives, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and a big part of it is the capitalist control of the utilities in Texas. And a big part of it is their infrastructure just isn't built for snow. And uh, so while that that was going on, Ted Cruz took his family uh, on a trip from Houston to Cancun. Uh, yeah, so this, I mean, it may have blown over, maybe not. It did kind of get a lot of traction, enough for Ted Cruz to re release a statement. And in his statement, Ted Cruz blamed his daughters and basically said, you know, they were begging me and I was just escorting them there. Um, and he, so he flew back the next day, is his cover story, but with the tickets that he bought at the last minute. 
And the part that's sad, the part that if you've seen the photo, just search Ted Cruz Snowflake. They left their dog Snowflake home alone in the cold. And uh, there's a photo of Snowflake in the house that uh, it's just a really cute dog and it looks pitiful and sad. So um, Between myself, Ted Cruz, and Rand Paul, who all have all grown sort of quarantine beards, Who's his best and why? Well, I don't like it on you. This next story, uh, scientists have found an unexpected animal life far beneath Antarctica's floating ice shelves. So this is from NBC News that I'm reading from. They discovered what appears to be sponges, like sea sponge, in the pitch black seawater beneath almost half a mile of ice. And uh, this says that biologists are baffled. And so the really crazy, when you learn more and more of the details, I mean, it's almost hard to conceptualize because Antarctica is so huge. Like, you know, it's just hundreds of miles of nothing of, of snow ice and so this is the geologists were more than 150 miles from the open ocean they bore a 3,000 foot or they bore a hole through 3,000 foot thick ice with a hot water drill and they put a camera in there and they expected just to see mud um, but they hit a boulder, which meant, this is from NBC News, it meant they, quote, couldn't get the intended sed sediment samples, but to their surprise, the camera showed colony colonies of stationary animals attached to the rock, probably sponges and related sea creatures. There was a story from Reuters headlined, Biden says Pentagon to review strategy towards China. Now, there, this article doesn't say much, but it does say the review will be among several others the Pentagon is already carrying out, ranging from troops in the Middle East to policy toward NATO. Both countries are at loggerheads over issues from technology and human rights, blah, blah, blah. blah. Under Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, the P Pentagon made countering China its top priority, something Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has signaled will continue. Speaking during a visit to the Pentagon, Biden said Austin had briefed him on a new China task force that would look at the military strategy related to China. What this tells me is... Maybe this whole reviewing our strategy towards China, maybe it doesn't mean much. Maybe that's just what they're saying. You may also think, well, maybe maybe Biden will uh, be less hard on China. And I don't really think that's the case. I think what will happen is the U.S. will stop the economic antagonism towards China. You know, maybe cut back on the tariffs and all that and what they'll do instead is you know just c 
continue to profit off of China, Chinese labor, have China as kind of like a middleman for them. You know, I think the U.S. sees China as one of their main links to more developing countries that are even more exploited, um, like in Southeast Asia or, or South, South Asia, stuff like that. So what I think will happen, like I said, is, you know, the, the U.S. will be even more directly economically tied to China, but they will, re they will reposition themselves as doing all the critiquing on human rights grounds. And I think that'll actually be more effective uh, at making people want just straight up war with China. I think it'll make liberals be like, we have to go to war with China. Because here's the thing, conservatives don't need to be convinced to go to war to China. You could be like, we're gonna nuke Timbuktu, and they'd be like, yay! They deserve it, yay! Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter who they are. Conservatives will be in favor for it. The way to get liberals in favor of going to war, uh, especially a really dangerous one that would probably spell the end of the U.S., like just a straight-on war with China, the way to get liberals to want to do that is... Uh, hum appealing to their humanitarian desires. Um, and that's not to say that th there's plenty of valid or humanitarian interests to take in China. I, like, I get it. I'm not a hardcore China defender, even though occasionally on this show I will defend parts of China um, against the more, like, really you know, extreme rhetoric, but that's not what the U.S. is doing. The U.S. is not um, trying to do genuine, legitimate humanitarian projects in China. They're trying to demonize China to make us hate them enough to go to war. This next story, also from Reuters, it says Amazon documents reveal company's secret strategy to dodge India's regulators. And the subheadline says Amazon favored big sellers on its India platform and used them to maneuver around rules meant to protect the country's small retailers from getting crushed by e-commerce giants. Internal documents show. I emphasize that wrong. Internal documents show. <laughs> there you go. As one presentation urged, quote, test the boundaries of what is allowed by the law. Basically, the Indian law says that Amazon or any e-commerce platform can only connect sellers to buyers and take a fee. Um, whereas in the United States, obviously, Amazon can both act as the middleman and the one selling the goods directly. So what what Amazon does is highly prioritize a few very large companies, uh, merchants, this is quoting from um, Reuters, merchants in which Amazon had indirect equity, equity stakes. So it accounted for, okay, so those are just two sellers. They accounted for around 35% of the platform's sales revenue in early 2019. 
ultimately, I want the the takeaway from this to be, you know, you could be like, oh, Amazon sucks because they're skirting the law. And they do suck because they are skirting the law. But what I would say is it kind of shows that something more drastic has to be done. There has to be a dramatic restructuring of society. Because what I'm taking, what I'm hearing from this story is no matter what regulations you put in place, capital will be able to skirt it. Not only because that's what it does, it always tries to find ways to spend as little money as possible. That's just what it does. But also, it's structurally set up that power always goes back to the most powerful person. I mean, we all know that the middle class is shrinking. Uh, The rich are just getting richer. That I feel like whenever you put a policy in place to stop companies from getting too big, they will surmount them simply because they already have too much power like and this is i would say it's a pretty drastic policy or not drastic but you know if we had this policy in place in the u.s our economy would look a lot different you can the online retailers can only be a middleman that's totally different from how things work in the u.s and yet it ultimately doesn't really change how much of a power grabber Amazon is. So I guess my ultimate point is like, it's hard for me to even be happy about regulatory actions that restrict companies like Amazon because I know that Amazon knows how to get around them. And not only that, but they are designed. The structure is designed to get capital growing as much as possible, which will always be at odds with whatever other policies they put in place. Jeff Bozo. A couple quick stories from Israel. One from AP News is there was an Israeli strike near the Syrian capital and it killed nine fighters. Israel fired several missiles early on Monday targeting areas near Damascus. An opposition war monitoring group said the strikes killed nine Iran-backed fighters. And I just want to make a point that Iran is allied ostensibly with the Syrian government. And so it's really odd to call them Iran-backed fighters when, yes, Syria is allied with Iran. (laughs) <laughs> against the insurgents in their company or in their country so like it just seems like a really weird way to frame it because you know your average american reading this will be like yay israel killed nine iranian backed fighters yay because they just already hate iran they already love israel and they're not going to read into it any more than that But it all begs the question, why is Israel killing people in Syria anyway? And here's a quote from the article. Israel has launched hundreds of strikes against Iran-linked military targets in Syria over the years, but rarely acknowledges or discusses, discusses such operations. So basically what Israel is doing, what they've been doing, is exploiting the fact that there's a humanitarian crisis in Syria 
you know, t- absolute bloodshed, chaos, just terrible for millions of people. Like a worse nightmare. And Israel uses that opportunity to kill, I don't, are they killing like Hezbollah, Hamas? Like, I think they put it as Iran-linked military targets, but that's really depersonalizing the fact that that could be a lot of people in Syria. And what is Aleppo? And then another Israel story, you know, in liberal and conservative media, there's been a lot of praise given to Israel about how supposedly well they've been administering the vaccine. Um, but this headline from Reuters, Palestinians accuse Israel of preventing COVID-19 vaccine transfer to Gaza. The Palestinian Authority accused Israel on Monday of holding up the delivery. No Palestinians have yet to receive any doses. And so it's not just that the Israel is, you know, holding back from letting vaccines get there. They're actively sabotaging any attempt to vaccinate the Palestinians. So it says, quote, a Palestinian official told Reuters that the Palestinian Authority tried to send 2,000 doses of Russia's Sputnik V vaccine from the occupied West Bank to Gaza on Monday. But Israel stopped the shipment at a West Bank checkpoint and informed the Palestinians there was no approval to continue to Gaza. An Israeli security official said the Palestinian Authority's request to send the 2,000 doses was, quote, still being examined and that, quote, an approval hasn't been given, hasn't been given, end quote. My mom is on the cheese! Hey, this is Decca calling in from New York City. Just calling to congratulate you and happy one-year anniversary. Keep talking the right and truth stuff. I love you guys. Hey, Christian. This is Izzy from Seattle. Just calling to say congratulations on one year of the Society Show. I can't believe it's already been a year. I'm so proud of you and um, so happy about the show and just so excited to see what's going to keep coming because you keep making more and they keep getting better and better, which is really great. All right, and now it's time for the last, longest, and most thorough segment of the show where I am going to add a new person to the official society show denunciation list. Oh yeah, you're laughing? You know what? You know what's gonna happen? Oh, you know what's happening to you right now? Huh, you know what's gonna happen? No, 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 no! What? You just made the list! And I'll just, I'll be adding at least one person. I'll put it that way. There might be a surprise at the end, but uh, I'll just put out who I'm adding to the list. First and foremost, his uh, name is Chamat Palihapitiya. Chamat is often presented as the good guy billionaire who, you know, is on the working class's people's side. But uh, I did some digging into what he really believes, and I'm going to show you all about that. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. 
But first, I'm going to play a clip from when he was on CNBC around the time coronavirus started. He was talking about how businesses should fail. They shouldn't be treated as too big to fail. They shouldn't be bailed out. And uh, this was shared widely. So I'm going to play the clip. Uh, if you remember, hopefully it'll jog your memory if you've seen it before, and if you haven't, it'll give a good idea of how he's presented to people in the media. You keep saying propping up zombie companies. Are, are you are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how, how does that make sense in the broader scheme of of the economy? Because it's not. Because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying, like, this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy, right? If anything, what happens is the people who have the pensions inside those companies, the employees of these companies, end up owning more of the company. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. But the employees don't get wiped out. The pensions don't typically get wiped out. Why does anybody, de- I just don't understand, why does anybody deserve, using your word, to get wiped out from a, a, a crisis created like, like this? How does anybody deserve to get wiped out? Well, but, but just be clear, like, who are we talking about? We're talking about a hedge fund that serves a bunch of billionaire family offices. Who cares? Let them get wiped out. Who cares? They don't get the summer in the Hamptons. Who cares? So generally speaking, in that clip, you know, you get why he's presented as a good guy. It's hard to disagree with him. But you also have to keep in mind that he is a billionaire. He is saying that from the perspective of a billionaire. And you have to remember, billionaires have a lot of conflicts with each other. Um, because they're that's by design. Even though they have class solidarity, they're both in the same boat about exploiting people, benefiting from their labor, etc., they're still in competition to get the most capital. And so whenever a capitalist billionaire like this guy goes on TV to criticize hedge funds, uh, you have to wonder the ulterior motive. For example, when the GameStop thing was going on, when it was getting short-squeezed, Elon Musk came out super supportive of the GameStop people. And you might be like, oh, that's Elon, classic Elon. Pedo guy. But the, the, the real truth of the matter is Elon Musk has a hardcore personal grudge against Melvin Capital, the people who had the short on GameStop. And the reason why Elon Musk has a personal feud with Melvin Capital is because they shorted Tesla and bragged about it a few years ago. Elon Musk doesn't care about uh, the little people rising up. I mean, maybe he does because he's like jerks off to anything that's like 
kind of meme but he only cares about making money. And likewise with Chamat Palahapitiya, he might be saying, oh, you know, these, these CEOs deserve to fail. Like, why aren't they doing better? For all we know, everyone he's picturing in his mind are his, like, billionaire rivals, not his billionaire friends. So... Speaking of billionaire friends, uh, I'm going to play a lot of clips from the show from Chamat Palihapitiya's podcast to give you an idea of what the so-called progressive billionaires really like. He hosts this with a bunch of other rich people, four, three others to be exact. Fielding Wellingtonsworth? Hello. Livingston Winsterford? Yes. Amelia Bedford Furthington Chesterhill? Good day. And James William Bottomtooth? Oh, no. And uh, it's really informative listening to it because it gives a lot of insight into the type of inane and just so out of touch crap that rich people talk about. So uh, let me play a clip. I want to play a clip that kind of sets the tone. So this isn't a clip from Chamat exactly, but I listened to like six or seven episodes of their podcast and this clip represents their general perspective. So if you, for every time you want to take down a company, maybe write about one company that's doing something good. There's some company doing something in carbon sequestering right now yeah. that is super valid and world positive. Write about it. And the only time they write about Tesla is when Elon trips or you know something uh, somebody dies in a car or they write about Uber. For context, that was the co-host of the show, Jason. I believe his name's Calaconis. He and the crazy thing about that is he's actually presented as the kind of liberal voice of the group. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he, there you have it. The media has it out for their hero, Elon Musk. They only write about him when his car kills someone. How dare they? What What else are they going to write about? Like, he, they made more cars this year? No one wants to hear about that. And the fact that he's so dismissive of the guy getting killed by the Uber or by the Tesla. Listen, buddy, if you were in a if you were in a self-driving Tesla and you died completely without a fault of your own, and I'm talking to the guy who's just speaking, if you were to accidentally die in a self-driving Tesla, Elon Musk would throw you under the bus so freaking hard, like he threw the guy who died in his car. Elon Musk or like he totally just did everything to make that guy look bad he's like oh yeah he was playing a game <laughs> he was playing a game while he was driving shouldn't do that when the tesla was marketed as fully self-driving and then after he died because it failed that's when they started being like no actually you have to do some driving but uh this will this will help you out um so that guy has just been, there's a concerted effort to make that guy's death into his fault when it was really Tesla's fault. And it's actually pathetic that he'd be like, they only talk about Elon Musk when he kills someone or his rocket blows up. It's like, why else are they supposed to talk about him? Are we supposed to talk about the epic maymays he got from Reddit? Like, what the hell else does he does except fail, make a shitload of money, and uh, act like a teenager on Twitter? 
So I have another clip that is also isn't from Chamat, but it's one of his co-hosts, David Sachs. Um, and I wanted to include this because he co-wrote the book, The Diversity Myth, with Peter Thiel, where they wrote several things denying or dismissing rape and arguing against multiculturalism. And like a good little profit-seeking capitalist, David Sachs, David Balsack walked back his involvement with the book in 2016, you know, when it started becoming bad PR to write that kind of crap. (laughs) Very convenient, David. And uh, in this clip, you'll see the type of absolute dreck these people impose on their listeners point is you can stuff it with overtime and it's very generous and then they can go because they're still in their 40s they can go get a, another government job somewhere else and then stack that pension on top and then by the way it doesn't just last until they die but it lasts until their spouse dies so um, now there was a proposal years ago to move this whole system to like a 401k type of system and it was squashed by who the unions and Newsom opposed it because, you know, he doesn't do anything that the unions don't want. And so we have these completely unsustainable pension liabilities. Everybody can see this train wreck coming, but nobody has the guts to stand up the unions and do something. So this poor, poor, poor hundred millionaire, multimillionaire is so oppressed. You know how oppressed he is? The big, mean, bad government employees get a pension when they retire. And you thought that was bad. They also, sometimes, they work post-retirement. This poor, poor millionaire is so oppressed by the unions. But, I mean, seriously, how, how much of a scumbag do you have to be to whine that middle-class people make a decent retirement? I'll get more into pensions later because it's something they cry about a lot on on this podcast. But basically, David Balsack is a big finance man, is mad that pensions exist because 401ks, well, for one, they're generally worse than pensions, uh, unless you're more rich, unless you have a lot of money invested like a lot, uh, but they're usually worse than pensions. And they're also part of the stock exchange. So, hmm, I wonder why a finance guy would be whining about the unions having a pension. The alternative is if they, you know, invested that money in the stock market. Maybe they'd get some retirement too. When obviously, I mean... If some if money goes into the stock market, people like David Balsack can benefit off of it. The more money goes in, the more money they take out. You know, a lot of people talk about how this, especially with the GameStop thing when that was going on, people talk about how the stock market is like a casino, and uh, that's not really accurate. I was listening to Chapo Trap House, and they said. Uh, it's like a casino, but 90% of the people there are collaborating with the house. And I wouldn't even say that. I would say the stock market is a casino for the ultra-rich. For everyone else, for the middle-class people, you know, you're basically following around the ultra-rich. And following their investments to hopefully make some get a little chunk of the money they're making 
uh, that's like, you know, that's like middle class stock trading. If you're a poor person and you start investing in the stock market, it's not at all like gambling because you have no input. You're really just like, what it's more like is going to a casino, following around all the rich people and picking up their pocket change that they drop along the way. That's what... That's what participating in the stock market is for a poor person. There will always be more money going to the rich people. That is how it's designed to work. They have whole computers. They have entire computer systems to make sure they make your money off the stock market. Anyway, let's get to Chamat, the progressive billionaire. Let's get into his views specifically. So, uh... Yeah, the the real progressive billionaire, here's uh, his thoughts on politics. Let's face it, like there are there are a lot of very very reasonable Republicans and a lot of very reasonable Democrats. The fringes of both parties are functionally mentally retarded. We know this. Okay? And so what you see are extreme on both sides who are just completely lost and looking for any excuse. And so you have a president in the tail end of his presidency, an anonymous presidency, basically call them out. Nobody who actually had a job or anything to do could show up, right? So you had all these people show up. It's a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday during the day. I mean, and what do you think happens? They're there. They're all frothed up, you know. So in that clip, he was talking about when people... Uh, storm the Capitol for on January 6th. So you'll notice, though, so he's talking about uh, the far right, uh, Trump supporters, but it's not only that he's calling out the far right, um, he's also calling out the far left and saying that they're functionally mentally retarded. But that's not even it. He's calling the extreme of both parties the parties he says they're functionally mentally retarded my point is the furthest left elements of the democratic party aren't even that far left most leftists don't like the democratic party at all he's calling people like aoc and elon omar functionally mentally retarded who else could he mean when he says the furthest left elements of the party he doesn't know about different types of communist thought like it's not like he's saying left comms or or ultra leftists or functionally mentally retarded because he doesn't even know what that entails he's calling people like aoc who invited him on her stream to talk about the GameStop situation. He's calling her functionally mentally retarded. So uh, keep that in mind that uh, the real progressive thinks that if you're far left, if you're the far left of the Democratic Party, which is to say not very far left at all, then you're functionally mentally retarded. On the same level as the most deranged Trump supporter. Yeah, real, real progressive dude. He's real cool. So, uh, this next clip, uh, to preface it, Chamat is talking to his buddies about how to get poor people to participate in the market. And the quote-unquote liberal host, Jason Calacanis, proposed giving everyone $5,000 invested in stocks at birth. And they talked about it a bit. This is Chamat's thoughts on getting poor people involved in the stock market. So many people don't 
even know how to begin and don't understand the concept of ownership. And so they are stuck in being in the ghetto of labor. And I think like one of the biggest things we can do is you can give them the taste of ownership so that they understand that difference, so that they want to be an owner. Yes. Okay. Number one. Yes. And then to, to David's point, number two is we still have a responsibility to educate people so that they can actually have skills that they can monetize. And we have a responsibility to do that. And right Absolutely. now we make it so fucking hard and we trick people because like we we send them down the path of getting a $200,000 art history degree and then they end up working at a Starbucks and then they're Which fucked. is impossible to monetize. So the interesting thing that's pretty glaring about this is we always think about billionaires as being extremely out of touch with the the working class conditions. And in a way, that's true. They have no idea how poor people live. They can't even conceptualize it. I'll put it this way. If someone like Chamat, a billionaire, if they magically all of a sudden had to live on my income, which is, I mean, it's less than 50000 a year. I'll put it that way. And kind of not even that close to fifty either. That's my yearly income. If Chamat had to live off that, he would uh, he would not be able to function. I don't care that he used to be poor. He has completely forgot. Like, if you're a billionaire for over a decade, you forget how to function without everyone wiping their ass for you and just, like, throwing dollars at you constantly. I think... A lot of billionaires would just straight up kill themselves, no joke, if they were faced with the living situation that working class people had. Because they don't even know how to function. They're, they're unfunctional. They're like those old dukes and, and kings and whatever in medieval times who were so delicate and fragile that they thought their their skin was paper and didn't want to touch anything because they just have everything done for them. That's That's kind of a sidetrack, though. My point is, even though billionaires are out of touch, they don't understand what day-to-day life of poor people is like. Even though they are completely out of touch, they totally understand how the economic process works. They know that the capitalist class who has ownership over the means of production benefit financially from the labor of the workers. The, the economy can't work unless that was true. There would be no incentive for a capitalist to hire a worker if they didn't profit off of the worker's labor. No one is trying to lose money when they hire someone, and if they do, they'll fire that person. All of this is to say that Chamat, he to- like he gets it. He gets the economic process. He gets his role as a capitalist. And he's extremely contemptuous of working class people, but like he multiple times refers to being working class as, quote, the ghetto of labor. He has such contempt for working class people, but he is very good at disguising this contempt in very like fluffy PR talk. And uh, this really just goes to show that. 
So this next clip, I'm going to get a little bit more into pensions and 401ks. So one of the hosts, David Freeberg, he is kind of framed as the negotiator of the show, but ultimately he seems to me to have the best grasp on real material conditions that exists outside of billionaire land. So he says that the U.S. shifted from pensions to 401ks to get people more involved in the market, but ultimately it's had little effect and it's resulted in less retirement uh, money for those people. Uh, So he's basically being like, well, 401ks aren't actually that good. But how do we get more people to do them? That's kind of his position. And Chamat says that 401ks used to be more lucrative until more people started using them. And here's his solution about how to make people get a lesser retirement so they can contribute to the stock market. Here's his solution. And so the, the, the problem that we've had is we haven't taught people you know, we've misdirected some of them to say, have a 401k, it replaces your pension as if it's the solution. That's still not the solution. Um, and, we, and we need to have ways of teaching people how to actually manage it. It's not that hard and the basics can be taught very simply. Um, but right now we are massively exacerbating this wealth gap, the way that we behave. And then all of this money that's going to go in, this 1.9 trillion, whatever, how many trillion comes afterwards, is frankly, for the few that are smart enough to take advantage of it, will be amazing, but it'll still push the overwhelming majority of Americans who are stuck in labor deeper and deeper into that ghetto and they'll never get out. So the the problem with this is there's there's an ulterior motive going on here. And like I said, you have to always keep in mind Chamat is a billionaire and he makes money from finance. The more people invest in the stock market, like using a 401k, which is riskier and usually worse than a pension, the more people like Chamat benefit. So he may sound, you know, super benevolent and caring when he says he wants to educate people on making the most of their finances. What he's really saying, though, is common people are skeptical about getting too involved in the stock market because they're worried they'd lose money. He's saying we should educate them, make them more comfortable about investing in the stock market. And remember, he financially benefits more than 99.9999999% of the world um, the more people invest. He he financially benefits more than almost anyone if people invest. And he's so rich that whether you do well, whether you make money in the stock market or whether you lose money on the stock market, Chamat still does well if you invest. So keep that in mind. You know, they they really uh, have this mass delusion that by getting more people involved in the stock market that will solve uh economic disparity when the reality is further from the truth is couldn't be further from the truth the more people invest the more likely finance people make more money maybe other people will make money too but say you have a thousand bucks that you can spare to put into a stock you know, in 30 years, maybe that stock has gone up 
200%? I don't know, but it's not gonna... It's, okay, $3,000. That doesn't mean shit to you. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to a, an actual pension. But uh, that little participation alone, if a thousand people do it, Chamat is getting rich. And uh, so here's the next clip. Let me just play it and then I'll comment on it. As part of the minimum wage, maybe we should have a minimum equity participation. So we have the minimum wage over here, but if you're working for an entrepreneurial enterprise, why not get a minimum you know, participation well, in the equity? Because the free market takes care of that. I mean, if you have the, the free right market skills, hasn't taken care of it, David. That's no, it the has. No, no, no. The no, free market it, has. I agree with David. The free market has. The problem wait, isn't how, that. How does a person working at Walmart ever participated no. in the Walmart appreciation of that's the, the point? They, of that they will they will leave and go to a company that gives them equity, and that's why you'll see this. This. Oh, this that's migration. convenient to say, but, they, but, but if got, Walmart's no, but the only job one. within an hour of their house, it's not. They got to have the right skills, Jason, and so this all comes back to education. You know, we got to. Yeah, but we gotta why not the right let skills. the people who are in rank and file jobs, the 30 million truck drivers, cashiers, et cetera, have equity participation as a right? I think I think you're saying something different. Should they? Absolutely. Should the company that does that be created? Absolutely. Will they be rewarded with all the people that want to work there? Absolutely. So now somebody should go and start that fucking company. Okay. And I guess this clip, I mean, it really kind of does show, you know, I was saying earlier, billionaires, they understand how the economy works. They understand they're exploiting people. But this shows that they don't understand how the economy works. Um, like they might in their finance way, I'm sure they know all these crazy tricks like gamma squeezes and crap like that. But, I mean, they're just so out of touch from the lived reality. Um, like, that clip gives some real insight into how the capitalist class interacts with each other. Uh, Jason Calacanis, Calacanis accidentally stumbles on an idea that would greatly threaten their role as capitalists. What if we gave stocks to our employees? That could be good, right? That would help solve in income inequality. Let's make these employees rich with us. And like clockwork, the other two hosts just blurt out, free market, free market. Oh, the free market, is, it explains everything. Um, and they don't elaborate on that in any way whatsoever. The most elaboration they can come up with is, well, theoretically, someone could make a business where everyone who works there gets part of the stock as part of their payment, and then everyone would want to work there. Really? That's your solution? That is the most non-ass solution I have ever freaking heard in my life. That's like... <laughs> that doesn't it's like he is a capitalist he knows how capitalists are motivated no capitalist would ever be motivated to give away their ownership that's the whole reason they're in the game so he's incredibly naive about this like i can't believe someone who works in finance well i can because you know the whole free market free market oh, you forgot about the free market oh that explains their perspective perfectly. So they can just throw out some dumbass, like, throwaway thought that no one should ever take seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. some company that hires, like, 200 people will let them have stocks. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, so oh, God, I can't even say how 
freaking stupid that is. I'm starting to get pissed. Let's move on to the next clip. And so what you're seeing now is a new fault line in American politics in the post-Trump era. It's not just about left and right anymore. It's about insider versus outsider. And I think this is going to be a major, major theme that we see. So for starters, this clip is confusing because you can tell he's ostensibly pro-outsiders. And they continue on being like, we need more outsiders, the outsiders rule. Uh, he literally at one point, I'm sorry I didn't include this in the clips, but it was surrounded by just meaningless fluff. He literally says, outsiders need to rise up at some point. Gamers, rise up! Rise up! But here's here's the thing. Don't forget, these guys are, by any possible measure, the most insider of insiders possible. So why do they present this insider-outsider dynamic when the in, where the insiders are the bad guys and they themselves are insiders? It's because we already have a category for insider-outsider, ins, and it's called class. They are from the dominant class, the capitalist class. And we, you and the person listening to this, we are of the working class. They are the insiders because they control capital, which our whole economy revolves around. And we are the outsiders because we are subjected to their control of capital. But the idea of insider-outsider is vague and... Uh, shout out to my boy Conceptual James. It's very conceptual. It doesn't relate to the reality around us. It can be warped and morphed into whatever these jackass wa jackasses want it to mean. That's why they pump up the idea of an outsider suggesting they consider themselves outsiders. Because outsiders as a category means nothing in this context. It's just a, a rhetorical trick to make themselves seem like the out-group when they're really the in-group. And uh, so for this next clip, so the host, David Balsack, he uh, was talking more about insiders and outsiders based on a passage in Elizabeth Warren's memoir where she's speaking to Larry Summers. Basically what Larry Summers says is that he tells Elizabeth Warren the difference between insiders and outsiders is if you're an outsider, you can say what you want and that's okay. It's accepted. If you're an insider, you are never allowed to criticize other insiders. And that's the only rule of being an insider. So on the surface, that makes intuitive sense, right? The insiders say insiders because they don't criticize each other. But that itself is, you know quote-unquote insider propaganda because the real truth is the so-called insiders constantly criticize each other constantly constantly democrats and republicans have a symbiotic relationship where they both retain power more tightly by demonizing the other side and it's ultimately all for show because the democrats need republicans as cover they criticize each other to stay insiders. 
that's that's the trick that's the game the insiders create rival factions within the insider group the common people then pick a side within those groups even though they're interdominant class they're inter insider groups fighting with each other for power and anyway so here are chamat's thoughts on the matter which are in my opinion a lot <laughs> they're a lot worse than just the whole like whole Elizabeth Warren anecdote about insiders protecting each other I think it's uh it's going to be very important for folks to not be a career anything meaning career executive career politician um career regulator career what if if ever you're in sort of like if you can put that word in front of your sort of existence, I think what people will see is someone who, as you said, thrives on being an insider. And I think that there's just going to be a ton of distrust. Career school administration official, you know, career admissions person. Career anything now is not what you want to be. You want to be sort of a little bit more dynamic because you can have multiple arcs to your life and you're not beholden to anybody. Okay, so the enemies are outsiders, or are the enemies are insiders, rather, which, like I said, is an extremely vague concept, but Chamat goes on to define it. Um, and he defines it as anyone who works the same job their whole life. Yeah, dude, a career school administrator is really the enemy, dude, sure. So what you have, you have a bunch of hyper-wealthy people, billionaires, Chama is a billionaire, telling their listeners, who are probably mostly middle-class finance bros, that their enemy isn't their, the hyper-wealthy elite who control economies and government. Your enemy is Peggy Jones, who worked 40 years as an elementary school receptionist. She's the insider, Chama's the outsider. That is really, that is the type of worldview they're implanting on you. And uh, the the disgusting thing about this all is, I don't think he realizes this, but Chamat is really priming people into a very dark future. And I think these next clips will kind of illuminate that. I think you might hear his views and be like, well, he's just kind of a rich stupid capitalist who all he knows is money and all he talks about is money he's obsessed with getting money that's true that is completely true that's true for all billionaires you can't have culture if you're a billionaire your culture is making more money but uh this next clip shows a really his bizarre vision of how he wants the world to be and uh as I have a few more, a couple more clips, and I think these will really encapsulate like the proposed future that Chamat wants. Like nobody wants to live in a monoculture where everybody's really, really poor or everybody's really, really rich. I grew up, it's so sickening. I grew up in a place where everybody was really, really poor. I now live in a place where everybody is really, really rich and the monoculture sucks. And instead, what you want is you want transitions. You want people moving up. You want people moving down. You want the hard luck story. You want the got lucky story. You want it all. And this is this is where we've lost it. Now, on the surface, like I get that he's he's saying this in a very folksy, common sense way. Like, you know, it's intuitive. Like, oh, yeah, monoculture is bad. We don't want everyone to just be like poor. 
we don't want everyone to be the same. But when you think about it harder, why would this be anyone's worldview? Seriously. Like, you want there to be people who go poor? Like, I'm totally in favor of any of these goons on this podcast going completely broke. But like I said, I don't think a billionaire or a hundred plus millionaire would be able to function if they lived on my salary. Not to mention, it's incredibly naive to say that he only lives around other rich people. Sure, like, I imagine most of the people he sees are rich. I imagine... Almost everyone in his town or neighborhood are very rich. But does he ever stop to think about the people who give him fast food or work at 7-Eleven or Rite Aid or whatever? Does he think about how much money they make? And they have to live in the same Bay Area he does? Like, I get it. It's really hard to imagine poor and exploited people working in Bangladesh or Malaysia or something. We're so removed from them, you know, we can't hear them, we can't get near them. We don't know what their lives are like. They're they're obscured from us. But imagine having that same lack of scope, that same lack of perspective, that you don't even consider the rich people, or, I'm sorry, that you don't even consider the poor people in the next town over in your worldview. When he says he lives in a monoculture of rich people, that can that is only true in the sense that rich people typically spend time around other rich people. Everyone spends the most time with members of their class. I only spend time with working class people. There must but there must always be poor people if there are rich people. Like he's acting like everyone's rich, but that couldn't be possible. Rich people need the poor people to do the labor. And you might think, oh, well, hypothetically, you know, there could be a world where 100% of working class jobs are completely outsourced. Well, that hasn't happened yet. And like I said, who's going to work at the pharmacy? Who's going to work at Rite Aid? Who's going to do that stuff? And uh, this last clip, while Chamat doesn't spell out his political views clearly in this clip, I think it's most instructive of his overall worldview, and this will really tie up um, a lot of thoughts I have on him. Why I think his, his political views are a lot more destructive than he thinks they are. I think that like we've gone from believing in institutions and now I think we fundamentally mistrust institutions. Then we spent 30 or 40 years believing in companies. And now I think we basically don't believe in companies anymore. And now we're sort of at the, at the, at the bleeding edge of what, where belief and trust exist, which is at mm. an individual person level. Ownership. So, ownership. So, so, so like, you know, I, I, and I think that when an individual has the potential to not just be about something for themselves, but also for themes that other people care about, that's when you get real heat. And obviously the most impressive example of that is Elon, because, you know, E represents exploration, engineering, science, climate change, you know, uh, memes, all, all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> not really. Memes. Not really. Uh, I think the other <laughs> things are really what matters. No. Of um, and so, and so what it shows people is like, I just want to find affinity around a few key people. And what he is, is not the end state. He's the beginning of the beginning, right? Mm. So what's going to happen is all of us will say, I don't trust institutions. 
So whatever they put out is just going to be corpo. I don't yeah. trust companies. What they say is going to be corpo. I'm yeah. going to take my best shot at finding folks that I think are real. Yep. Um, and I'm just going to get... Be- that, that's the thing. That's why I wanted 100%. to do this with Jason. Yeah. The, uh, I guess, delusions of Granger going on at the end where he's like... He's basically try- saying that the future of reality is creating godmen who... Um, we all form a, a culture around to change society. Do you believe in society's laws? Like, he's basically advocating for people uniting around Elon Musk um, and him becoming, like, some future corp- corporate lord or uh, some, like, fusion of, like, a feudal lord and a capitalist. Um, but the the hubris comes in at the end when he's basically like, oh yeah, the reason I wanted to do this podcast is I wanted to become a corporate lord like uh, Elon and make people think I have a lot of really good ideas so they'll be subservient to me. Like he's, he's basically just straight up saying that. Um, but to get to the broader point, the whole age of the individual stuff, I mean, it's pure rhetoric. It means nothing. He doesn't mean what he thinks he means with that. What he means by the age of individual, he really means the age of companies, even though he said everyone lost their faith in companies. And he's right. Everyone did lose their faith in companies. But turning Elon Musk into the symbol of like what we revere as a society do you believe in society's laws is still having faith in companies you know why we only know who elon musk is because he owns companies elon musk is not he is a nothing person he is a typical reddit bro who's like middle aged she should move on to better websites that aren't for teenagers but he's As a person, he's the least remarkable person ever. He is only remarkable because he owns companies. We would never hear a single thing about him if he didn't own companies. What Chamat wants, and what I imagine his co-hosts want to some degree, and what I imagine most young ultra-rich capitalists want, is for celebrity and politics to synthesize with finance and have Elon Musk be the figurehead of, like, a corporate dictatorship. And in this sense, you know, I've talked about Peter Thiel a lot on the show. I really don't see how this so-called progressive billionaire is any different than Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, who's also on the Society Show denunciation list, he's a lot more forthcoming about what he really wants. He wants a reality, a neo-reactionary reality. Neo-reactionary is a is a concept developed by a guy named Curtis Yarvin, who also goes by Minchus Moldbug. Curtis Yarvin's idea is basically a cameraless cameralism was this idea in i think 1800s germany central and northern europe about having a very business oriented rigidly structured bureaucratic society and so the neo-cameralists want to do that where it's basically the corporations fuse with the government 
I don't see how what Chamat is saying is any different than Peter Thiel. The only way it's different is it's obscured by the age of individual rhetoric, which I've already established means absolute jack shit. The only individuals he points out are only known because they own companies. They are not actual individuals. They're not figureheads for a movement. They're figureheads for capital. They control capital. It's all about the money. It's all about the money. It's all about the dum dum da dum dum. I don't think it's funny. And with that, uh, Chamat. It's time. You've made the list. And you're added to the society show denunciation list i am calling you out you're welcome on the show my publicist robbie dierte will be sending you an email and uh you're welcome to come on the show if you want to challenge my accusations but uh if he if if chamat came on the show that would be one of the bravest things a billionaire has ever done and, uh, you know, I had a, I said I had a special surprise for you at the end. I've, you know, Elon Musk has come up a lot this episode. He's, if you listen to the past, like, four episodes, he's come up in, like, three of them. And he's not on the Society Show denunciation list. And he's such a regular feature of the show. He's, he's so intrinsically tied to Chamat's worldview that I'm denouncing. That, what else can I do except add Elon Musk to the list, too? So, Elon Musk, you just made the list. And I'm calling both of you out! I'm calling you out! Yeah, I know about the Society Show. I love it, that podcast. He's the best. As for the other hosts of the All In Podcasts, you know, David Balsack and the other ones, maybe they will get added to the list, but uh, they're not remarkable enough. Like, they're just kind of dime a dozen capitalists. I really don't care that much. But uh, if, you know, say David Balsack comes up again, yeah, he will be added to the list. But uh, let me read where the list is at now. I have eight people. Peter Thiel. What? Curtis Yarvin. What? Eric Weinstein. What? Jeff Giese. What? Eric Prince. What? Madison Cawthorn. What? Chamat Palihapitiya. What? And Elon Musk. What? Those are the eight people. They're all welcome on the show. Hey, Christian. It's Randy from Philadelphia. Congratulations on your one-year anniversary. That's super exciting. Um, I do miss you but you've moved someplace infinitely cooler and are doing so much better. And I'm super proud of you. Keep up the great work. I love this show. Have a great 2021. Stay safe. Bye. So this has been the one-year episode. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a great first year. I know the show is going to grow way more into the second year. It will probably control the world by the third year. Uh, So with that, You can follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally at Christian is cool is spelled I Z 
at Christian Izzy Cool. You can also write into the podcast if you want an email read on the air at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. And you can call call the show if you want to leave a voicemail like other people's people did. Uh, I will play your voicemail on the show. Just call 971-BETH-1-E-U. Those are if you're using the letters. 971-BETH-1-E-U. But if you're using the numbers, that's a 971-238-4138. And with that, thank you for listening to The Society Show. It's been one year. We're all happy about this year. Well, I mean, the world's kind of sucked the past year, but we've had The Society Show. Have a great podcast, my friend. We all love The Society Show. Goodbye from me, Cato Kalen. You have these people that are so polarizing that you forget that there are legitimate views on both sides. I mean, I would characterize my political views as, in some cases, like deeply conservative, meaning get the government out of the way. They're a bunch of incompetent fucking buffoons. I'll frame this in in the context of Peter Thiel. He has a philosopher that he's talked a lot about, Rene Girard, and... I had a call this week with um, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. What an unbelievably impressive guy. Holy fucking shit, this guy is amazing. Hmm. Um, what he's done in Miami is incredible. Um, I mean, the GDP growth is like Chinese GDP growth, 10%, 8%, 6.5%. He's running fiscal surpluses. You know, crime is down, down, down. He's done an incredible job. This guy's a fundamental centrist. You know, and when you talk about what his beliefs are, I was like, what is this guy? Is he a Democrat? Is he a Republican? I was like, he's like, honestly, I'm a centrist. This creates the opportunity for this, I think Trump wants to call it the Patriot Party, to be sort of center-right. I think Democrats probably ebb over time, you know, center-left. And then the Republicans actually are this interesting power broker because they can actually tack to the middle and be centrist, you know, about... A social safety net combined with, you know, small government. If you could somehow tiptoe and, 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 and balance on that line, I think that is the winning strategy that people want. You know, if you, if you break down capitalism into its two most natural states, you have labor and you have capital, right? You have workers and you have owners. And... The the biggest problem that technology did was it drove a wedge and it created an extremely small owner class and an extremely massive labor class. And so the reality is that a very few, very a handful of people can can get extremely wealthy by being owners of these next generation assets. Um, And then everybody else is essentially, you know, rendered as labor. Um, And so this wealth inequality just grows and grows and compounds. Um, And so we have to figure out a way. Yeah, how's that different than the past? Oh, like I the, think it's the, got I think I think technology accelerated that dynamic.